Thank you, praise team. Great job this morning setting the table for Luke chapter 23, 32 through 34. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to take those and turn there with me. Michael, is this mine or yours? Thank you, appreciate it. Uh, I need that, that'd be great. Uh, the, uh, I have this weird thing, I try not to eat or drink after people. I have an irrational fear of um, spinal meningitis. So, you know, you get that from drinking after people. Did you know this? You can eat or drink after someone, it'll kill you. And there's like no cure for it. So anyway, but yeah, so there you go. I know it's not rational, but I have it. So anyway, if you try to talk me out of it, remember, it's an irrational fear. <laughs> All right, we've been moving through the, the gospel of Luke, the gospel of Luke, and Luke 23 through uh, 32 through 43, we're going to see the crucifixion today. Uh, we've seen Jesus move to the trial. We've seen Peter deny him. We have seen here uh, Luke being very particular in the parts he is highlighting as we go through this book together. And today, as we open the Word of God, uh, we, are, we are seeing the apex, the, the great climax of redemptive history. We are seeing God's plan. To redeem a people. So I want you to think about this. Like We've talked about this before, but I just want to reiterate this. In the Old Testament, think about all those Passovers, all of those Sabbaths where they had sacrificed lambs for a thousand years. The, the coming of the fulfillment of the prophecy of the, of the heel that will crush the head of the serpent. It's here. This is the moment that we have been building to. All of those lambs that had been sacrificed for, for sin, all of those goats that had been used as scapegoats in the Old Testament, all of that is, is being, is scripture and prophecy coming to fulfillment in the text you're reading today. And I love to see prophecy become fulfillment right before our eyes. And that's what we're looking at here in this section of scripture. So let's look, about, look at this text here, Luke 23, 32 through 43. Here's the word of God. Hear it. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And where they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, he, sa he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, which was the charge that the Pharisees and Sadducees gave to Pilate, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who was hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Amen. May God add a blessing to the reading of his holy, inerrant, 
infallible word. We may write his truth on all of our hearts because the grass withers and the flowers fade. Say it with me if you know it, church. But the word of our God endures forever. You know, I don't just say that every week. That's scripture, right? We're saying scripture together when we do that. All right. So let's rewind the tape here to verse 32, where we were to start here. Two others were, were criminals. First of all, this word criminals. Uh, this is the word Luke uses to describe uh, these two men and the sentence that they were given. If you'll remember, there were usurpers and rebels that were rebelling against the Roman government. They would sometimes jump out, grab a Roman soldier, and you know, take him out, steal from tax collectors who were collecting for Rome, had had those contracts out, and also steal from other of their countrymen who were going to pay those taxes so they would not be able to render any taxes over to Rome. So these men have been arrested. Now I personally, this is an inference from Scripture, I think that these two men, these criminals on either side of Jesus, are most likely in cahoots with Barabbas, who was already released. you remember that? I think they were probably captured about the same time, set for the same execution date, probably working together in their collusion and rebellion against Rome. The two here have their dates set, who are criminals, led him to be put to death with him. So here they all sit. Now remember what I said a few weeks ago. Jesus comes into Jerusalem. He's on a borrowed donkey that does not belong to him. He is now going to be on a borrowed cross. This was supposed to be Barabbas' cross, right? You remember that? They gave him the choice. He's going to be on a borrowed cross so that he will ascend to a throne that only he and he alone can occupy with that authority. He's going to be put to death between these two criminals here. Now, moving forward here, verse 33. Look what it says. And they came to the place called the skull. Uh, The word here uh, renders in Greek where we get Calvary from. So that's where that word comes from. Have you ever heard that hymn, The Old Rugged Cross? Is anyone familiar with that? You remember how it starts? On a hill far away. Did you know, fun fact, that the scripture does not record Jesus was crucified on a hill? It doesn't say that anywhere. It's just something that's in the hymn. It's not actually in there. It is most likely that Jesus is crucified on the side of the road where there was a high traffic area. People would stop and, and gawk and look, you know, to quote the great theologian Kurt Cobain, here we are now, entertain us, and execution is a form of entertainment here, right? I was wondering if some of you would catch that. Anyhow, so this is a place where when you walked by it, you would smell death. As people were being crucified, you could smell what death smells like. You could see what death looks like. And so it developed this name, the skull, from that. And there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. By the way, I've said this before, but of all the ways to die, perhaps the worst that could have been done at that time would have been crucifixion. You're basically struggling to breathe as you push up. As you're down on the cross, you can't breathe. You have to use your legs and push up. Remember, Jesus has already had a beating where his back probably looks like hamburger meat. Okay? He's pushing up on the cross every time to get a breath. These criminals, to say anything to him, have to push up to speak because all that weight on the diaphragm. And so to die on the cross is basically to suffocate. So this is a, this is a precise place. This is a particular people that we're talking about here this morning. And this is a very painful death that's being outlined here. And here he's also being given as a perfect sacrifice. 
But what I want to draw your attention to and what I want you to think about is about three things in the text this morning. The first one is this, and it is his prayer. All right. I want you to look at Jesus' prayer here in this passage. What does he say in the prayer in the text that we read this morning? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I want you to think about this for just a minute. There's some implications here that are fascinating to me. First of all, what prayer could Jesus have prayed here? Have you ever asked yourself this question? I mean, I know it obviously says that in the text, that Father, forgive them, but this is the Son of God. This is the one who was at the right hand of God. This is the one that God hears and is faithful to deliver in all sorts of situations. This is the man who stood on the bow of the ship and said, be quiet, and the storms listen to him. He could have done prayers like David in the Old Testament, where he prayed that his enemy's skulls would be smashed into the side of a cliff. He could have prayed like Elijah, the little boys were bothering him. I mean, I think we could all safely say that if somebody put you on a cross to execute you, they would classify as your enemies, right? Was that, is that fair to say? I would think so, right? How you treat your enemy here says something about the very nature of who you are. And Jesus could have prayed, smash their skulls, all of them, right? He could have spoke one word, knock them all down flat. He could have called down a multitude of angels in that moment for deliverance. Of course, that wasn't God's plan. That wasn't what he signed on for when he came. He knew what he was going to do. We're seeing the very heart and nature of God in this passage and in this text this morning. Father, forgive them. And it's interesting here. Who is the them, right? Who is he talking about? Is he talking about the Roman soldiers who have gambled away his clothing, who have mocked him and beat him? Is he talking about the ones who are, are making fun of him and as he's dying, instead of offering a refreshing drink of water, offer him a, a sour wine, a vinegar that would not do anything to help? I know some say it's medicinal purposes, but let's be honest, when you're in that kind of pain and dying, I don't know that anything really helps that way. It's more of a mockery thing. In addition to this, it, they have... Uh, put on their king of the Jews over him to sort of mock him. Is it them that's in there? Sure. Is it the Pharisees in the crowd that's part of the them? The ones who have met in secret, in hiding, who have come to capture him in dark places during the Passover, who pretend that they love the things of God publicly, but privately are dead inside and hate the things of God and do not want any king, Herod or Jesus or anyone, but would rather be kings of their and queens of their own lives. Is it them that is in that passage that is there? You know, this is a prayer of agony. Every muscle and sinew of Jesus Christ is, is crying out in agony to the Father in this prayer. The suffering that we're seeing here and we hear him say, under immense suffering, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's a plea of affliction. Pardon these wicked rebels here. Give them a pardon here. This waving of the rights of sonship. He is waving it here. He could have done those things and he chooses not to. Instead, he pleads for mercy and for forgiveness. You know, this is really the mark of a true heart of God. 
If you're not coming on Wednesdays, I'd invite you to come as we're moving through the book of Daniel. Last week we looked at Daniel chapter 9. Daniel here is reading Jeremiah. And from reading Jeremiah, he figures out that God is about to deliver them from about 70 or 60 years of captivity in Babylon. That's a long time, isn't it? And you would think if you just discerned that from the scriptures, I don't know about you, but I would be ready for a party, wouldn't you? I'd be ready to like, let's have the, the best Passover ever. Let's have the best celebration. Let's get the best cooks and have a, have a festival in the streets. And what is Daniel's reaction to the news? He repents. He begins praying and pleading for God's mercy. And we see something of that echoed here in Jesus. He knows what he's doing here. In his worst day when hell is doing their worst to them. In his moment of affliction. And by God's mercy he's pleading that it may be our greatest day. It's a plea of absolution here. Being, being delivered from sin. You know, you think about who is the them? Is it the people that are walking by who are just watching him die? You know, it's one thing if somebody dies and they're surrounded by loved ones and they're watching them die. But it's quite something different if you have a bunch of strangers gathered around you as you're taking your last breath. And they're watching you die as a spectrum of entertainment. Is that comforting for you? If you were dying to be surrounded by people walking down the road, watching you die, much like they might watch a deer take its last breath on a hunting trip. (laughs) The them here is all of them, isn't it? Or perhaps it's the them that's in the future. Those who are yet to be born in a, a state of rebellion against God and Christ, but will come later. And who is it? Who is the them? And the answer is yes. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's a plea of abundance here. Father, forgive them, not just the soldiers, not just the Pharisees. Don't stop with all, but all. It's a simple faith. It's a simple trust here. Now, let's turn our attention to these thieves that are crucified next to him. You see the heart of God here when Jesus waving his sonship, pleading the, the mercy of God, offering it to all that are there as it is being offered to you now. We see, we learn something here about these men. First of all, let's think for just a moment about the one thief who does not recognize him, right? They're there and he is on the cross with Christ. It says here, amidst the cheers of the crowd and the Pharisees and the Roman soldiers here all making fun of Christ, not only does he have that problem, but the thieves on the cross show us the true depravity of humanity as crucified men, men who are in the process of dying in the same way that Jesus is dying, are not uh, encouraging him, not happy to be there with him. Uh, they're not recognizing who he is, at least one of them, but rather hurling insults to the man dying next to him. Is that not a testimony to the depravity of man? <laughs> to hurl insults to a, friend, to a fellow human being dying next to you? What does he say? Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. What is his mentality? What is he thinking? When he looks at Jesus on the cross next to him, I think his thinking is something like this. This man that is being crucified next to me, this is nothing more than a failed prophet of Israel. I have heard stories where he's done different things and he has been able to work some miracles. 
perhaps he can be of use to get me out of this present situation that I have found myself in. Not so much I'm ready to bow the knee for him, not so much I'm ready to follow him, but if, the, if this guy who's in the same situation that I am, who's a human being like I am, who's on a cross like I am, right? I'm not going to follow him or do anything until I see something fantastic. And even then, you know, I'm going to be a little skeptical, right? Are you not Christ? Save yourself and save us. Deliver me from my present, current situation. A dying man hurling insults and wanting out of his position to a dying Savior who is actually dying for the sins of the world. You know, I have a friend who, he was a, uh, he's a pastor now, but when we were in seminary together, he was a chaplain in a nursing home. I can remember one day in lunch, I think I've told you this before, but I can't remember. If I have, you just get to enjoy it again, but anyhow. I said, man, it must be great working in a nursing home. I bet you see a lot of people come to Christ being closer to death and knowing they're closer to death than people that are 30, 40 years younger, right? You know what he told me? He said, Travis, whatever they were like when they were 30 or 40 is exactly what they're like when they're 70 and 80. So if they were chasing money, chasing uh, you know, the opposite sex and chasing uh, pleasure, that's how they are when they're 85 years old. Most of them are hardened in their sin and are not seeking the Lord. However they were when they were young is how they are when they are old. Now we contrast this. this uh, that's food for thought, isn't it? Sometimes we just look at somebody older and think, oh, well, they must know because they're older. Not always. Not always. We contrast this to the other, the other thief that's on the cross here in verse 40. And... Uh, he, he begins to put this thing together. These are probably Jews of Jewish background. They've heard the stories. And they know that it, the Bible tells us that a Messiah is coming. They know that Isaiah tells us he'll be crushed for our iniquities. They're familiar with that. And he's seeing the situation happen in front of him. And he's starting to put this whole thing together. He has heard him say, you know, other, other gospels record that. Some of the things that Jesus said on the cross. He says Psalm 22. David here gives us that as a messianic psalm in a, in a tip of the hat. He hears, he hears him say, Father, why have you forsaken me? He hears him quoting King David. And something clicks. This is, this is God's son. He gets it. And he begins to believe. Do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence? So he rebukes the other thief on the other side there of Christ not sure which side each one was it doesn't exactly say and, and he and he look what his request is to jesus here right he understands his plight he's there because he's been a thief he's been a murderer look at verse 41 what what does he say here and we indeed are justly for we receive the due reward of our sins so he he agrees that they're where they're supposed to be that this christ is not and it says here but this man's done no wrong and then look what he look what he says in verse 42 jesus Remember me. This is fascinating to me, right? Remember, not too long ago in the Gospels, we were seeing discussions among the disciples, and they were saying, who's going to be at your right hand? Who's going to be number one in your kingdom whenever you come into authority? I want to be number one. Can I be number one? You know, one of them, I think, one time sent their mom to check with him and say, you know, can my boys be, you know, can, can you make, some, make them a little bit higher up, right? And what is this thief on the cross asking for here is he asking to be at the right hand of the father is he asking to be number one in the kingdom behind jesus what's he want he didn't even ask to be saved right he didn't even say lord save me what's he say just remember me 
Just remember me. It's very humble. This may be the only true believer in the crowd in the New Testament. This may be like the first believer here, right? Ever. Right here in the New Testament. Jesus, we don't even know his name, do we? Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then look at verse 43. Jesus' reply to this man who is dying, who is broken, and who believes. These two men are the same. They're in the same situation. And they represent humanity, don't they? Same situation. They are dying men speaking to one another. One is trying to flee what is happening. One is accepted and just asked for mercy. He said, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Verse 43. I know it probably sounds odd. This would be a great text for a funeral. Because there's a few things that we learn from this passage about what happens after death? By the way, before church this morning, uh, Patty Marlowe's, I don't know if you know who that is or not, but maybe you know Derek and Lauren Suggs. It's Lauren's uncle. He passed away from pancreatic cancer. I went over there, prayed with the family before services today. I've uh, been visiting him all week. I actually told Zach, I said, I'm going over to visit somebody. He's probably going to be dead in three days. And he was awake and conscious. I said, What do you say to somebody that's going to be dead in three days? You know, now you tell them what the Word of God says, don't you? Comfort him with what truth is there. Of course, for all I know, we may only have three days, right? <laughs> we don't, we're not promised tomorrow. And I asked him, I said, you know, if you could go back in time and talk to your younger self before you got sick and everything, you know, when you were like 20 or whatever, what would you tell yourself? And he was a faithful believer, loved the Lord. And he said, uh, I'd tell myself to serve other people more and to serve my local church more. And I thought, well, that's a pretty good answer. <laughs> That was words from a dying man on his deathbed this week from Robert. What's the veil here? What's Robert get to enjoy? Well, first of all, we learn a few things about what happens after death to those who are humble and believe. First of all, Jesus said, you will be. So there's personality that's kept in heaven, right? You on the cross, you will be with me in paradise. You yourself, your personality, your unique uh, soul that is you, you will be with me. Second thing we learn here, we not only learn that uh, there is personality, but there is paradise and there is peace that is unending here. To be in the presence of Christ and away from this sinful body and this sinful world and to be at rest. Now notice, he doesn't say this to the other thief, right? This is a singular version. It's you singular in this, not you plural, right? You singular will be with me in paradise. So we learn you retain your personality. We learn that you will be with Christ in heaven. He's really what makes heaven, right? Jesus is the crown jewel. It's not about doing whatever activity you really like here as much as it is being in the presence of Christ. And it will be paradise and ending of which we've never known. You know, it's amazing here the forgiveness that lies in this text. Um, found this neat story this week by from George W. Bush's administration when he was president. There was a guy named uh, Timothy Gogolin, who was a special assistant to the president of the United States and the deputy director of the Office of Public Liaison. Came in one day, he had an email on his computer from a reporter. The reporter was asking him if he had plagiarized some articles he had sent to a local paper that he had written for free. He had not received any payment for writing these. 
And he dropped to his knees and began crying out to the Lord. Oh God, oh God. He knew his world was about to end because he had, in fact, plagiarized those articles he had sent for free. He didn't even receive three. And he replied back, yes, it is true. I have plagiarized. And he explained to the reporter that the pride that had grown in his heart for years in the White House and the pride that had, uh, he had allowed deceitful behavior on his part, he had stolen the words and the works of others, and he knew what must happen. He resigned his position and told them he would be back in Monday to collect his things. When he arrived Monday to collect his things from the White House, his boss, the chief of staff, Josh, was there waiting on him. He said, I'd like to talk to you. And he thought, oh boy, here is the watershed moment. Bear in mind, husbands, if you can think about this for a minute, if you had to go home and tell your wife that you had lost your job because you did something deceitful that you knew was wrong, and you had to tell your wife and children that's why you lost your job because of a moral failing that you had had, you imagine what the consequences of that would be, not just for you personally, financially, but as the leader in your home. That would be so hard on multiple levels. As he was beginning to leave, Josh Bolton, chief of the staff or the president, asked him to come in. And he thought, here it comes. This is the watershed moment. I'm going to get what's coming to me. Comes in the office, sits down. He says, well, uh, he started to apologize. He said, I just want to know. He said, you're forgiven. He said, you're forgiven. He said, how's your family? And he kind of explained how they were doing and what was going on with that. And then that had a good conversation. Went back to continue packing his stuff to leave the White House. And as he was about to finish up, Josh came in and said, the boss wants to see you. By the way, the boss is the President of the United States. That's George W. Bush. So he wants to see you in the Oval Office. So he asked him to go into the Oval Office. The seat of honor in the Oval Office, I don't know if you know this or not, you probably do, but it is the seat that's under the picture of George Washington that's considered the seat of honor in the Oval Office. Of course, he doesn't sit there. He sits on the couch farthest away from the President's desk, (laughs) as you know, he's very shameful of what he's done. And uh, I want you to listen to what President George W. Bush said to him at the time. He said, Tim, I forgive you. He said, Tim, I, I have done some things in my past for which I need and needed forgiveness. I grant my forgiveness to you freely. And Timothy, I want you to bring your wife and your children here so I can tell them what a good job you've done for me and for your country over the last seven and a half years. As you know, the president arranged to fly his wife and children to the White House. They came in. He set them down in the Oval Office in the seat and had him sit in the seat of honor and his family around him. And he told the wife and children what a wonderful job he had done over the last seven years. And George W. Bush gave his family a personal tour of the White House. Isn't that incredible? That's an incredible forgiveness, isn't it? But friend, let me say this. The prayer you've heard today from Jesus... The forgiveness that is offered past this, this forgiveness through Christ is even better than being pardoned by the U.S. president. This forgiveness that is being offered to you is an entirely different type of forgiveness that will result in an eternal pardon, not just one for making a mistake at work. The question is, who will you be? Will you be like the thief on the cross who just wants a savior to deliver them out of their present situation? Or will you be like the thief on the cross who puts their hope in a future in Christ, forgiven and bought and paid for by his blood? I think we 
both come to church on Sunday morning, but only one group is truly saved in the end, aren't they? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage today. What, what words here we see. Whatever trials people came in here facing today, the great burdens they're under, they're owing their shoulders or their hearts, I pray that by faith, as we look to Jesus on the cross, that we would see your plan and your purpose and your forgiveness as the thief on the cross that recognized you did. I pray if there's anyone here today that is far from you, that this would be the day that you would draw them near to yourself and that they would find rest and forgiveness and joy in you. Lord, we love you. It is difficult for us to imagine the immense pain and suffering and humiliation you endured for our forgiveness. What else can we say but thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, today is the day. Perhaps you have spent time and you have not uh, taken serious what the Lord has said. Today is the day to take these things serious. Or maybe you're here today and you want to be part of a church family here. We can do that through baptism or uh, we can transfer you over. We can start that process today. Or you just want prayer. You know, you're in the middle of this situation that feels like it is unending. And it is horrific. And it's the hardest thing you've ever been through. Remember, Jesus told us, or Paul told us that we will face fiery trials. And we are look to Christ as that thief reminds us to here, even in the midst of that. Please stand as we sing in response to the word of God preached.